I had my training wheels, bicycle made of got this uh, weird message happening and I think that it's uh, we ignore it but I mean I don't know what I, they, they say that we don't have a virus but it's it claims that we do hmm. um, but it's your own risk okay thanks alright yeah so we are uh, dealing with this but we have Chris Carlson in the studio so hopefully people will be able to listen Chris Carlson is the author of Nowtopia. Nowtopia is a book about outlaw biking, permaculture, biofuels, and what's being described as a social transformation that redefines politics as we know it. Uh, he's here, actually, so we're going to have him here in a minute. Right now he's talking to Stephen Bowers about all the questions that we're going to ask him. Yeah, so we... Just a constant on our show feedback. That's because we... we Rely on feedback here at Bike Talk. No, um, but uh, we have a bunch of people here. We got Johnny B in the studio, Larry Hoffman, Jim C, Joe Linton, Chris Carlson, Stephen Bowers, and uh, hopefully sooner or later, Elisa. Then we'll have one uh, other gender represented here. Hey. Good morning, Nick. How you doing? I'm great. I was, uh, yeah, we missed you last week here. I hope uh, hope everything went well last Sunday. Uh very interesting day today here. Uh, 
If you're listening, I want to thank you. If you uh, have anything to say in regards to whatever's going on, give us a call. Here at uh, Kill Radio, our number is 213-252-0998. If you're listening to us on kpfk.org, I'd like to say thanks. Um, I'm sitting in here with uh, with Nick, Steve, and Chris Carlson. Uh, Chris, I'm going to start with you here since uh, you're you're the only one seated ready to go. You're ready to go. Um, Chris, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, your history with bikes? Yeah, I'm Chris Carlson. I live in San Francisco, and I'm happily visiting Los Angeles uh, to talk about my new book, Nautopia. But I'm also here as a longtime bicycle activist, a person who helped to be one of the founders of Critical Mass, evidently, although it's really important to emphasize that not one person, really dozens and dozens of people in San Francisco and probably thousands of people around the world who have reinvented it again and again in many cities, so I'm happy to be part of that process, but I'm hardly solely responsible for it. And uh, I've been a long-term bike commuter in San Francisco since 1978, and that's part of what gave rise to my desire to ride home together with my friends and uh, to be in a group rather than as an isolated individual on the road. So I've had a long time of thinking about the problems of urban transportation and urban design and how ridiculous it is that the bicycle is treated as a toy in the United States rather than a reasonable choice for personal transportation. And um, I'm very interested in larger issues beyond the bicycle that the bicycle helps connect us to, like issues of public space and re-inhabiting the urban environment, uh, reclaiming our time and technological know-how from the market and reinventing life on a whole new basis. So I could go on and on, but I think probably you want to <laughs> direct this a little bit more. Yeah, I'd like to start out by asking what exactly you do for a living, what what your your career is, and also what kind of bike you ride. Those. Let's start with those two questions. Uh, I'm kind of an anti-careerist and an anti-professional who's had many irons in the fire for a long, long time, but my current main income comes from desktop publishing. I do work for a couple of different weekly and quarterly newsletters and newspapers. So I used to make a living from the Longshoremen's Union, the ILWU. I did their newspaper for 11 years until they abruptly fired me for no cause, no reason, except to hand the job to somebody else's girlfriend. <laughs> so uh, that was too bad. That was about a year, year and a half ago. But uh, <clears throat> So I basically make my living sitting in front of a computer, and I have six books in print with a fantasy that someday I might actually make some income from writing, but that doesn't really ever quite happen in this society, especially if you have essentially a, a dissenting point of view, as I do. So there's that. And as in terms of bikes, I'm kind of not very much of a tech geek about bikes. I, I try to ride whatever presents itself to me, but I do have a specialized frame that has been weirdly hybridized with apanger handlebars and rather powerful uh, freight-carrying rack on the back, and I call it my Cadillac pickup truck, and I get around San Francisco on that. I ride up to the top of Twin Peaks once a week at least, and it's a very functional vehicle. It can do anything I want on it. It's not the kind of bike anybody would use if they were serious about racing or serious about long-distance travel or serious about a whole lot of things, but it's a very serious urban bike for everyday use. Okay, you mentioned uh, the Longshoremen's Union. Uh, this is an interesting one to me because I think in San Francisco, didn't the Longshoremen's Union probably now, you said you were there with them for 11 years, uh, 98 or 99, I think the couriers up in San Francisco tried to organize under the Longshoremen's Union. Were you with them at that point, or is am I, do I even have the right union? That's a very interesting story. The bike messengers in San Francisco uh, have an organization that goes back to the early 90s called the San Francisco Bike Messengers Association, which has been torn up from time to time over internal des desires and counter-desires around the question of unionization or self-organization in general. 
and different people have passed through the SFBMA, and, and at a certain point there was a rising tide in favor of unionization with a mainstream union. And it was a decision to make between Teamsters, the IWW, which is hardly a mainstream or organization, and then the ILWU. And the ILWU was the one that won that, that decision. And there was actually a vote, and a majority voted to affiliate with Local 6, which is the warehouse local in San Francisco. And they managed to organize two shops, ProMess and uh, Ultra X, and both of them are no longer around, as far as I know. And the effort to keep the union going really foundered on the fact that, as we know, many bike messengers are kind of maniacally individualistic and feel really oppressed by the idea of being in an organization that they're not totally their own thing. And the other problem, of course, in the business world of, of messengering is that a lot of messengers figured out that their best deal that they can make for themselves is to start their own business. And so most of them went freelancing and cherry-picked all the good jobs. And the idea of sticking to a, a corporation that's, you know, the biggest one was DMS, the one that came out of New Zealand and tried to monopolize the, the courier business across the planet and had taken over businesses in many major cities. And there was a big wildcat strike against them that the ILWU was lagging far behind on. And the people who led the strike were the actual couriers for DMS who were just, like, not going to put up with this wage cut and speed up that they were going through. And so they had a very successful Wildcat strike that brought DMS to their knees, and ultimately, very soon after, six months later, DMS went out of business. And it was partly because of that strike that really sort of shook them up, I think. Definitely a lot of courier history up, up in San Francisco and a lot of things that we could talk about in regards to the union. But to kind of steer us back towards the, the start of, the, of critical mass. Now, critical mass, uh, for those of us, for those of us here in the studio, we're all very familiar with what critical mass does, what it stands for, uh, getting riders focused on, in the driver's minds, you know. And uh, but I'd like to tell you, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how it started, and uh, and basically what the idea is behind. Well, critical mass <clears throat> grew out of uh, a sort of ferment of these couriers getting organized and a bunch of us who are daily commuters and people who are recreational riders and people who were trying to resuscitate the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, which has since, since been successfully resuscitated to the point that it has 10,000 members and a half-a-million-dollar budget and a number of paid staff. And I argue that they're that size and that influential thanks to critical mass, although they don't like to think about it that way. They think it's their their ardent work in the, the trenches of lobbying, the government that has brought them to the point where they are. But Critical Mass goes back to, we started in 92 in, in September, and it had been kind of a gleam in the eye of a bunch of us who were in conversation over beer and, and smokables and whatnot for a long time in my office about how can we do something more interesting politically on our bikes, because all of us are out riding them anyway, and shouldn't we do something that kind of brings us together, find a way to sort of make a statement for ourselves not so much to make a statement to anybody else but just to say here we are you know just really note the presence that we to ourselves and the motorist fine that's good too uh and the guy the idea kind of gelled that we should essentially gather at the foot of market street which is the obvious commute corridor in san francisco and then if we could get enough people to come we would actually fill the street with bikes and it would displace the cars and not only that but under california law the pace of traffic is set by the traffic. And if you're going the pace of traffic, you're not breaking any laws. And so we weren't saying that we're trying to block traffic. It was never about that. It was always about a celebration of a better way of getting around in cities. And so we started out the first ride in September 92, and about 50 people showed up. And it was surprisingly magical and euphoric. We just couldn't believe how fun it was. And we didn't even know it was going to happen. I mean, we really didn't. I'd been out handing flyers to bicyclists going by, but you know, you never know if people are going to show up or not. And so happily, a bunch of people did. <clears throat> and then the next month, we had another double that size, up to 100. And then the month after that, it was 220 or so. 
So it just grew really fast. And by the third months, we'd seen Ted White's documentary, Return of the Scorcher, where George Bliss describes the Chinese bicycle traffic pattern of them piling up at the side of a busy street and eventually pushing through when they reach critical mass. And they're like, yeah, that's the name, because originally we called it the commute clot, <laughs> which did, didn't have quite the resonance. So the idea was always to uh, essentially reoccupy and re-inhabit the urban environment on a different basis, on the basis of rolling through the streets, being in convivial conversation with each other, smelling the, the smells and hearing the sounds, the tinkling bells, and just really displacing the automobile from the space that we were in, but then not trying to hold a space. Like a lot of problems that come up when you're in a kind of a radical moment and you want to confront the state or confront the, the authorities and hold a space against them. And, of course, they've got the military superiority at any given moment. So trying to do a fixed space, you know, kind of almost like a chess match didn't make sense to me ever. And I thought, wow, nobody's ever tried this before. Let's try to have a space that we that never stops moving and just keep it going. And it's like a snake, and it'll be very – and it turned out to be very convenient for us and very uh, efficient at keeping them on, off, off the, on the back of their heels because they'd never seen it before. Nobody had ever really done that as a sort of a political strategy. And even you've even had you know Rand Institute analysts calling this a new kind of swarming technique that they're really freaked out by, and then the military started actually <laughs> copying it in certain moments. Uh, you actually mentioned several good points here, but one of the things that I want to ask you about, you said that this initially from the beginning, it's been instead of a statement of "Hey, here we are," it's been more of a statement of celebration, of "Hey, we're here," you know. So. Uh, you also mentioned that you guys are, are roving space takers. Has there ever been a point where you mentioned you mentioned the military, you mentioned uh, police action? Has there ever been a point where there's been any kind of police action taken against critical masters? And being at at the forefront of it, do you know of any any militant activities in other cities? Well, the police have attacked critical mass a lot, including here in Los Angeles during the uh, the uh, convention in, what was it, 2000 or 2004? I can't remember. But anyway, there was a, a big roundup here. We had a big attack in 1997 in San Francisco where the police just decided under the instigation of the then mayor, Willie Brown, that they should really go after us. And they uh, were kind of overwhelmed because thousands of people had showed up. Cause Willie, it was kind of a long story, but the short version of it is that Willie Brown in the summer of 97 got stuck in his limousine in traffic during the June critical mass ride and then decided for various uh, not good reasons that he was going to take advantage of that and create a little media storm attacking the bicyclists and critical mass. This is, you know, five years after we'd started, and we were quite big at that point. There was oftentimes two to three to 4,000 bikes out there, especially in the summer. So, you know, it would take a long time to clear traffic after we'd gotten through. And... Um, he spends a whole month of July drumming the drum, saying, you know, we're not going to let this happen. We've got to get it under control. It's going to be legal and done our way and, you know, follow the rules and blah, blah, blah. And so all these bicyclists were like, no, no way, no way. We're going to all show up, and there's no way they're going to tell us what to do. And so we go down to the uh, Pee Wee Herman Plaza, we like to call it. It's actually called Justin Herman, named after the redevelopment czar. And... Uh, there's Willie Brown and the police welcoming us to our own ride, you know, giving speeches about this great San Francisco institution, critical mass. And we're, like, horrified and just really angry with him. So he's getting booed. It's really well done. You can see this in uh, Ted White's movie uh, called We Are Tra We're Not Blocking Traffic, We Are Traffic. And it's online, too. You can check it out online, that whole video now. 
But uh, there's Willie Brown getting jeered and booed. And then finally, we just all took off. And it went in every direction all at once. And thousands of bicyclists just pouring through the streets. And it was complete mayhem and chaos, like worse, worse or better than it's ever been, depending on your point of view. And uh, he just unleashed the police. He was so angry and humiliated by that experience you know, when he thought he was going to. And he always had been trying to like lure me and other people into these negotiations. Because this is the technique of a classic politician, is you get the leaders into a closed room and you cut a deal. And during that month, sure enough, the bike coalition directors, who are kind of normal mainstream people who don't really get it, uh, went to meetings with one of his his lackeys, a guy named Michael Yaki, who was on the board of supervisors at the time. And Yaki comes out of this meeting with the board, some of the directors from the board, bicycle coalition, waving this piece of paper, and they're looking like Neville Chamberlain getting off the plane for meeting with Hitler, saying, "Peace in our time. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have we have a deal." Nobody made any deals. He just completely faked that in front of the press. And of course, they splashed it everywhere that there had been this deal between bicyclists and the city, and now there was going to be this orderly critical mass. And it's like nothing of the sort had happened. But the, the city, you know, Willie Brown and his his people tried to make it look like that. So when we completely flaunted that in his face, and it was really satisfying to do, yeah, of course he got angry and he just unleashed the police. So they basically attacked people in the street that day and ended up arresting about 110 people by the end of the night. All of them pretty much rounded up at the very end. They were the last tailing group that was still moving through the streets, and they just surrounded them downtown and took them all in. None of them were ever convicted of anything. They hadn't done anything. They didn't even, most of them didn't even get charged. It was just a way for the police to pad their stats and show that, oh, there was something terrible going on, so we had to arrest all these people. But actually, there was no reason to do that at all. And really, bicyclists don't are not violent. They're not doing anything bad. They're just riding their bikes through the streets. And, you know, some motorists get really bent out of shape about it. So that was one moment, you know, kind of an illustrious case in San Francisco's history. But, you know, the LAPD beat up a bunch of people here, I know, during the convention. And then the New York police have been really out of control since the 2004 convention of Republicans in, in New York. They've had a incredible personal vendetta against bicyclists there. They've seized hundreds of bicycles and, and impounded them and uh, you know, arrested and, and really treated people terribly, beat up a lot of folks in New York. I saw cops beat people up in Minneapolis during critical mass riot. I've seen confrontations in other cities as well. I mean, in Italy, they've had their moments. There's a bunch of rides throughout Italy where they get pretty confrontational. But, you know, Italians like to fight the, the police, so <laughs> that's not such an unusual thing. Um, in terms of, I don't think really bicyclists in general are trying to provoke that. I think what you have is a culture war in this culture that's referred to even by mainstream pundits from time to time. But our, I think our version of it is that we actually are creating a new world, and we're actually living a better life by bike being bicyclists. We're actually improving our immediate conditions, and we're creating a culture that's going to continue to erode the stupidity of the bigger world that we live in. And the cops really take it personally. Because they're, you know, basically working class guys, mostly guys, sometimes gals, who have that ball and chain of debt around their ankle. And they just look at us going through the streets, scofflaws, you know, having a great time, rolling through the red lights, laughing and joking. All of us are good looking, making out with each other, having these lovely moments. And they're, the guy, they're just like resentful because there's this joyful thing happening that, that is contrary to their vision of what America is, which is suffering and misery and follow orders and do what you're told. And so they decide, you know what? You're not going to get away with it. I'm going to personally take it upon myself to punish you and exact a price for your pleasure. So our uh, politics of pleasure, which is, that, as I've argued, even with people within the ride, is much more subversive than anger. You can go out and yell at somebody. They're not going to change the way they think. But if you go out and invite somebody to join you in a really fun thing that they can actually start to change their life with, 
hey, they might actually be open-minded enough to hear that and change a little bit. But if you just call somebody names and say, you know, for being in a car, you can be sure they won't rethink what they're doing at all. So the cop thing is kind of like a personal issue for a lot of individual police officers. And then there's a larger issue for the, the state to figure out how to control this new phenomenon, which is a mobile swarm of people on bicycles who can actually be quite disruptive if they want it to be. But if you look at how many times we've had critical mass rides all over the country and all over the world, man, we are really peaceful and we are really happy. <laughs> We're not really trying to wreck anybody's life or cause any major problems. Actually, we want to live this other way. We want to change what it feels like to be in cities. And every time we do it, new people come. And every time they come, their imaginations about what's possible for life together in the city changes. And that's subversive. That's the kind of stuff that really begins to make deep changes. Once again, I just want to remind everybody, we're talking here with Chris Carlson, one of the uh, one of the original critical mass riders in San Francisco. Or what was it called? The clot? Commute clot riders in San Francisco. Also here with me, I have Joe Linton, uh, one of the authors of a book about Los Angeles and uh, definitely an, a longtime bicycle advocate. Joe? Uh, do you have any anything you'd like to add to what Chris is saying? Actually, you just pulled out a book here. I'd like you to talk a little bit, too. Yeah, no, I, I'm curious to ask Chris some questions, too. But um, I was on the, the ride in uh, 2000 at the Democratic National Convention when we had about we, – we had never had more than 70 or 80 bicyclists on critical mass. We had 300 riders at the Democratic National Convention. As we – library, the, the police – it sounds a little like the the – uh, Willie Brown story you were talking about the police swarm and say you can't go and we all just split in every direction and we we were fine whatever <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't really stop a bunch of bicyclists that easily so we had about 300 riders about 80 police on bikes chasing us and and it was a much faster pace than any critical mass I've been on because we were all just like nervous and full of energy and uh, and we tooled around for like 45 minutes almost an hour um, and we 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 sort of uh, we were in we had pursuit all the time and helicopter and everything and uh, we got to a point where we were near near Washington and uh, Grand and um, and all of a sudden this big phalanx of police on motorcycles started whipping past the mass up toward the front of it and uh, and then they cut off the front and the mass just like atomized and went you know a thousand directions and. Uh, we had we had 71 people arrested. Uh, apparently, a lot of the people on the ride were were cops. There's multiple stories I've heard of, like uh, the police swarmed in to grab people, and like people pulled out their IDs and said, "I'm police, I'm police," you know. So we had a bunch of plainclothes riders with us, swelling our numbers. And uh, yeah, I spent I I was living with a woman at the time who was who was in jail, and and Ron and his wife and. Uh, all all kinds of folks. So I, I was I was doing a lot of um, kind of jail support, like getting getting people's mail and going to the hearings and stuff like that. But it it was it was um, I have to say it was I mean it was the most arrests of any uh, demonstration at the DNC that year. Uh, I think the the anti police one only had like forty arrests or whatever. So so a, a a, a squad of people on bicycles, a moving mass of people on bicycles, is more threatening to the status quo than than a than a march or a protest or whatever. But I I like what what you were saying, Chris, and this is something I try to say about like I think a lot of our um, a lot of our political so-called demonstrations or protests, sort of like if 
if the United States pulls out of Iraq, well, then we stop protesting the war. So, uh, so it's sort of like it's a it's a demand. Bicycling is is different. We're we're not going to stop bicycling if the city. Uh, whatever turns itself in in Nautopia, we're we're going to keep bicycling because we love it. So it's it's a demonstration in the most core sense of that word that it that it demonstrates a new a new way of living on our streets. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear how you think critical mass has changed over time because I think it's 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 uh, in LA it's definitely had different flavors over time and 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 I I think it's actually been. The, the the energy and I've ridden Critical Mass in San Francisco four or five times and been with you know three thousand four thousand riders and it's it's an incredible energy but I, I'm curious how it's how it's changed over time how, how you've seen what tell us about what you think about Critical Mass well in the beginning of Critical Mass um, in my office where I was working my desktop publishing or typesetting business at the time there was a group of maybe fifteen or twenty people who would gather every every month and start plotting the next ride and we would actually plan a route that had a thematic point of let's go to the you know old freeway stumps because we were taking down the freeways which we were delighted by for instance or you know follow the old creek beds or something like that we'd always try to pick an interesting theme and part of it we, we got more and more motivated as time went on to go to interesting parts of the city that people didn't normally go to and a lot of people who came on critical mass were having their first experience riding through the city at any length and especially to these parts of the city they'd never seen. So there was something really fun about like really exploring the geography of the city and having this creative relationship to the whole landscape that that kind of eroded over time. So the first two and a half years we were there, we had a little newsletter called the Critical Mass Missives that we published every every month. And after two and a half years, we realized that the rhetoric we'd been using about it, which is that anybody can do this, nobody's in charge, it's a you could be a bureaucrat, bureaucracy rules. You go to your business, your company's office copier, and make all the copies you want. Uh, and you're doing humanity a favor by diverting their resources from their normal stupidity to something useful, communicating with other bicyclists. And uh, and that really was not being lived up to because there was a small group of us that were doing all that communicating month after month. And so we just dropped out of that. We just said, okay, we're stopping. New people take over. And that was in the middle of 2005, about two and a half years into it. And from then on, uh, there, there was about a year of, of a real struggle with this one madman who decided he was going to take charge. And he wanted the rides to always be really long and not stop for hours and go to the top of every steep hill in town. And his name was Christian Lackner. Who had, he had, he, I just knew that he was, like, mentally deranged because I'd been through a terrible story earlier in my life dealing with a madman who was trying to kill me. And I picked up on his energy really early, and so I just realized keep that guy at, at arm's length. But he was publishing full-color maps and full-color proposals all the time. Uh, he had a, uh, some gig where he was printing at school. So uh, it took about a year, but another group of people emerged who were really unhappy about one guy being so dominant. And, and I, we just refused. We were not going to deal with this. We didn't want to be in a power struggle at all over this question. We wanted other people to assert some sort of more democratic process. So then... This new group of people emerged, and we kind of gave them some behind-the-scenes advice about how you can easily change what's going on out there by just showing up with an alternative and organizing friends to shout a vote for it for other routes. And then uh, after this whole debacle of 97 with the, with the attack from the police and everything, in nine, the, the following months we did the good soldier strike routine where we just followed every rule of the road to the T, and it made the traffic so much worse. And so they stopped bothering us. The cops just backed off completely and stopped bothering us. And then it became kind of like, well, we don't really have to plan ahead, or any, nobody has to take any responsibility. We just know where to go and just do what we want. And so we just ended up having these spontaneous rides. And it's been almost 10 years like that where 
only maybe once a year I kind of try to resuscitate the idea that we should publish a route sometimes and have a reason to go to certain places and end in a party at a park or something like that. But in general, the culture has somewhat fragmented. And, and one of the, the sort of recent phenomena, we're almost 18 years old. It's really old. <laughs> I mean, there's little there's people who are tiny kids or barely born who are now regular riders, you know, on the ride. And so you have this endless influx of youthful energy, which is great, but you also have the problem of transmitting the culture. And so we had a whole lot of work that we did in the first three or four years to really get a culture going that had a certain kind of etiquette. And there was a, this idea of corking, this idea of xerocracy, this idea of having a slow front. Get in front and keep it really slow because no matter how slow you go in the front, the people are getting falling behind in the back and gaps are opening up and it's dangerous. And your cars get into it and it scares the motorists and it, scares, it, it can actually hurt the bicyclists. So <clears throat> I've also been ticketed several times for corking on critical mass. So the police hate that when you start taking that over. They, they actually will not do anything to solve any problems, but then if they see you solving problems, they come in and, and ticket you and arrest you. So it's their way of trying to pick off leaders, quote, unquote. But um, <clears throat> nevertheless, people continue to do that stuff. And I was in Vancouver for critical mass in June. They had a huge ride every June up there. And corking was a party at every intersection. They'd have like eight or nine people doing a, a curving cork at every intersection at every intersection, and there was always a party. And I was like so impressed with the Vancouverites. They really have it down. And I've seen the same thing in other cultures too. In Italy, they've really got it together. It's a much more sociable and, and convivial environment. But the police are you know, trying to figure out how to disrupt it and make it less pleasant in general everywhere you go. And they're somewhat successful at taking some of our best institutions away from us. So the, the, the ultimate point, though, is that there's <clears throat> these various ways that the culture has to transmit itself. There's sort of do's and don'ts, things that work, things that don't. And we also have you know, the endless influx of people who come because they, they heard about it from the news through their brother or whatever, and they think it's about coming out to fuck shit up. And it's not. It never was. But that group, the, you know, the testosterone brigade shows up on a regular basis, and they have to be talked to. And that was true in the early days, and it's still true today. But there's fewer of us willing to take that on and go and get in somebody's face and say, why are you acting like an asshole? You know, you're not really helping anybody. You're not helping yourself. You're taking advantage of this mob to behave in a really antisocial way. We're actually out here trying to change the world, and you're there trying to reinforce the world. So please take it somewhere else. You can get away with anything you want. Right now, on the other side of town, don't do it here. And, you know, we've had that conversation with people over and over again. And, I, you know, now I'm an old geezer in the ride. So I go up and talk to somebody who's 22 years old who wants to go out and argue with some guy in a BMW because he's basically angry at his father, uh, you know, I can't get very far by telling him to stop doing that for those reasons, even though I can see perfectly well that that's what's going on. So there needs to be a culture that tries to reinforce subversive pleasure as, a, as an organizing principle rather than anger and torment, which is just a waste of time by my, <coughs> by my accounts. It's it's one of my big pet peeves is people who people who they they gun it to the front of the ride and then they want to sit they want to they want to gun it through reds in the front of the ride and stuff like that. I mean, it's like how do you what's your tips for for keeping the front of the ride <laughs> slower and and I I think it's really you know people in the back should be thinking about how they can get to the front and people in the front should be thinking about how they can show for the back. We, always, we had flyers, you know, it was one way to just to communicate the idea because people don't really get it, that if you're in the back and you see a gap, fill the gap. Get up there and fill it. And people are just lazing around, having a nice time, talking to people and not really thinking about being responsible. So you got to kind of transmit that to people somehow. And then the people in the front, in San Francisco, you know, we get tourists in the front all the time who just show up. They've never been in critical mass in San Francisco, and they're so excited to be in. And they get out in front, they really don't know where they're going. They don't know what good routes are in the city. They don't know what makes sense for our traffic patterns that works for us, works for bus riders, works for pedestrians. 
So it really behooves some of us who are experienced to get out in front. And, you know, we get tired of doing it month after month, all the same people. There's three or 400 of us that could do it. But most of us say, hey, I've done it 122 times. I don't really need to do this anymore. I'm just going for a ride, and I can just kick back and have a great time. I don't need to take any responsibility. But the front of the ride needs to have some people who get it get out there and insist on what the, what the right way to do it is, which is stop when you, hit, when you come to red light, stop. Let the people behind you catch up. That's the point of the red light. And then if, once you enter the intersection, never let it go. Keep it completely full of dense bikes. But if the bikes are breaking up and you have a huge gap, like a block-long gap, don't cork at an empty intersection. It's so obnoxious. Let the traffic go through on their green light and regroup and catch up. And these are just sort of no-brainers at first to, you know, when you think about it. But people don't get it because the larger the ride is, the more anonymous people are and the more willing they are to be passive uh, recipients of a gift of some weird event or party, and they don't really feel like they have to take any responsibility for it. So it, the only answer to this is communication, is you have to communicate, and it means putting out flyers, and it means talking to people, and it means modeling it as well. I'm Elisa, and uh, I just had a question. And that is, because you were talking about the BMW, like the guy that's mad at his dad. <laughs> like, what do you do... How do you calm someone down when you are corking a main intersection and, for example, there was a semi that was coming through regardless. It was not going to be stopped. And it was me and two other guys that was like, are you kidding? I had a megaphone. So I was talking in the megaphone like, what are you doing? Like trying to talk to this guy that's huge and scary. And this other guy came up to, like, defend me. And as he's as the semi is inching forward, I'm sort of inching away to not get hit. And this guy literally, like, I think his tire skimmed the tire of the semi, like, because he was arguing that much with the semi, and the semi was just going to go through. Like, how do you remain positive and, like, you know what I mean? Like, or, and the BMW, we had an incident with a BMW as well, literally a BMW, where the guy, like, rear-ended the, a bike. Like, his, his bumper hit the back of the tire, and then the bike, and then that's when the guy was, like, what and got off his bike and like <laughs> tried to get him out of the car kind of thing i mean like i understand that aggression you need to like calm that down but how do you how do you play the game and still you know what i mean what do you have any well there's no magical solutions for those things you, you really did a good job of just hanging in there and trying to keep the process going as best you can and that's all you can do and sometimes you're just going to lose to that kind of energy of a guy in a semi he knows he can just roll over anybody and you're going to get out of his way you don't want to die and just get out of his way. Then you might decide to reverse the process and say, okay, fine, you're an asshole. We're going to get you through here as quickly as we can and get the bikes to stop and really help them get through so that you just facilitate the movement of the ride and focus on that rather than on blocking traffic because really that's not why we're out there to block traffic. It's just incidental that that happens. So I think sometimes you've got to sort of concede the moment and say the best thing I can do for the success of the ride is to facilitate this asshole getting out of the way. Uh, when the guy comes up and hits a bicycle uh, in San Francisco, he usually ends up with a broken window or a majorly scratched car. And so, uh, yeah, and I, I don't think that's an unreasonable response from people. I don't do that, but I, I see that that happens, and it does have a, a discouraging effect on people behaving that way in the future when they find out that that might be the penalty that they're going to pay. So it's been pretty effective at getting people to stop doing that in San Francisco, that there is a physical response to that kind of belligerent and actually homicidal behavior because if you're going to take a car into a crowd of bikes you could kill somebody you might think you're just doing your you have your right to push through but you don't and so you know people need to have that expressed to them i'm in favor of you know a major group of bikes just surrounding a car that actually has quite an effect it scares the hell out of the motorist and generally they don't keep going 
and uh, you know you can do things to their car if you need to. But mostly pounding on it and just making a lot of noise is enough to get them to stop. And uh, at that point, you know, you can clear the way. Again, it makes sense to figure out how to facilitate safety. I'm actually interested in not anybody getting hurt, and I don't have any reason to have an ongoing confrontation with somebody who's a totally cre big creep because most people are actually kind of friendly. You know, the cars mostly are like, okay, fine. You know, I get it. You're going to take your 20 minutes. Fine. I'm just going to sit here and grit my teeth. I'm not happy about it, but that's how it goes. And, uh, you know, you need And the other thing that really works at those moments of confrontation is to have a piece of paper to give the motorist. So we had a flyer that we used for years in the Texas Online in the, in the How to Do a Critical Mass. You can look for How to Make Critical Mass as a, a booklet we published. And the flyer text was, we're sorry, big, huge, we're sorry. And that already kind of gets them disarmed, right? If you give them a flyer that says, we're sorry, then you read it. It's, we're sorry you're stuck in traffic. We're sorry it's like this every single day, even when the bicyclists aren't here. We're sorry we live in a society that's organized around the private automobile and the oil industry instead of being organized on another principle. We're sorry that the streets of the city are designed for cars only and not for bikes and pedestrians. And, you know, We're sorry about all these things, and we're really sorry you're not already out here on your bike with us, and we really hope you'll join us next month. And here's where we meet, and here's the time. And so it gives them something to read. You know, and if you do it in a sort of friendly, jocular tone, they don't. Their their anger goes down, even if they're still irritated. They're not nearly as in a state of moving towards a state of rage. And you've shown them that you've actually thought of them because you gave them something that speaks to their condition in that moment. So it costs a little money or a lot of stealing Xeroxes at work, either way. And it's time consuming. I did this for years. We used to make stacks and stacks of these things, and we put them on a big ring. So you just had them on your handlebar, you just. <laughs> and hand it to people as you go along. And you can hand it to bus riders who are stuck. You can hand it to pedestrians. You can hand it to motorists. So, you know, and you guys are all smart folks here in L.A. You'll think up your own text, you know, but I recommend something like that as a way of, of it's a way for you to have a way to engage with people where it's not just like trying to convince them to listen to you in that moment. Once again, this is Chris Carlson here. Chris, you, you've written a few books. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier. Uh, you've, you've, have, you've shared with us some incredible ideas, and you've gotten around to to questions that I wanted to ask, like how to disarm the cyclist that that is angry about the BMW, like uh, who is actually angry with his dad, but is taking it out on the BMW. Yeah. So, like, uh, so do you, I want you to tell us a little bit about some of the things that you published, like Nautopia, some of the, some of the other stuff. Well, there's a good book on critical mass. If you're interested in that, it's called uh, Critical Mass: Cycling's Defiant Celebration. I was trying to capture the both spirits in the title of, you know, the celebra celebratory aspect, but also the defiance of it. And so that's a book that came out in 2002, corresponding to the 10th anniversary in San Francisco. And it's got essays and photographs from all over the, wor the world, really. And uh, it was fun putting that together. Then um, I, I have several history books that are regarding San Francisco history. In fact, if anybody out there is listening who's really interested in a, in a new approach to uh, the history of an urban environment, there's a website you can go to called foundsf.org which is the wiki version of our Shaping San Francisco project that we've been doing for five years. And there are several books associated with this as well. Uh, but the most recent book that I'm actually here doing some presentations of just last night at the LA Eco Village to a, a wonderful audience and yesterday at Farm Lab. And tonight I'll be at Book Soup at 7 o'clock. So if anybody's listening wants to catch my, my Nowtopia rap, come on down to Book Soup tonight on, uh, in West Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. And Nautopia is subtitled, How Pirate Programmers, Outlaw Bicyclists, and Vacant Lot Gardeners Are Inventing the Future Today. And it's a, 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 an argument about how a lot of what the real interesting radical politics uh, are today has to do with how we take our time and our technological know-how out of the market and start doing really practical things that make our life better right away, just for, the, for its own sake, but 
in doing that, we're actually setting the foundation for both technically and socially for a post-capitalist life. And people don't think about these things in these bigger ways when we're out fixing our bikes or doing our, growing our tomatoes or whatever it might be. But there's a kind of a deep cultural impulse towards challenging the entire technical apparatus of our society that doesn't have a political voice yet. It's barely showed up in terms of how people think, in terms of everyday life. You don't imagine you're part of a large political movement. But actually, all these little things that we're doing are much more significant than people think they are, and that's what the point of the book is, is to put it in that context. Now, there are a lot of individuals out listening that that feel like that feel a connection to what you're saying. Is there, is there, does Nautopia offer any kind of community tips, any kind of get involved information? It's more, it's somewhat more theoretical, but it does have a lot of references to things that are already going on. So it gives you a guidelines to think about what you could see in plain view that you didn't notice yet. And it's in your own behavior sometimes. It's in the, in your neighborhood where there might be like the bike kitchen or the bike oven or one of these kind of places where there's a DIY bike shop around that you can go and plug into community gardens, uh, sustainable biofuels co-ops, open source software activities or using the open source activities to communicate with people and build community and build another way of thinking about our lives. Essentially, we're, we're stuck in a world in which most of the work that we do for money is a complete waste of time at best and mostly, or it's actually wrecking the world. And so we don't have a politics of work that's very well evolved anymore. And this book is really an attempt to look at how interesting is it that so many of us have to do something dumb for money so we can pay our rent and survive, but then we're actually working really hard when we're not at work on really interesting things where our full humanity is engaged, our full creativity is engaged. And I think that should be the principle on which work is organized in general, the, all the work that reproduces life. And so we have to really attack the stupid world of capitalism that makes so many people do work that's actually really bad for their mental health, really bad for the physical health of the planet, and it's completely a waste of time most of the time as well. I think it's funny that you say that. I do want to push your – who did you get to publish this book? Uh, same same that published the Critical Mass book, AK Press, yeah, the anarchist press up in Oakland and Edinburgh and, and London and West Virginia. And uh, they're, it's an uh, anarchist printing collective. I mean, not, they're a publishing collective, and they distribute a lot of books as well, and they're really worth checking out at akpress.org. I know Joe had something that he wanted to add here. Yeah, well, well, one thing that, that a project that I'm working on in, in L.A. Um, to bring people together, and I mean, and I think all the bike rides and the, the, the co-ops, the kitchen and the oven, the microwave um, are really good solutions. But um, another, another way that we're bringing bicyclists together is a, there's an event called the Bike Summit that's coming up in, uh, on March 7th at L.A. Trade Tech. We've got some speakers from, uh, from Davis, from... Uh, Portland, from Mexico City, from New York, kind of talk about what what's worked, some success stories from other areas. But really it's about bringing, it's a lot of kind of DIY, it's a lot of workshops from local folks like Cycle and, and Kitchen and uh, uh, Ron Milam, Bike Sage, and uh, a couple of City Lights, it's a group in, in South Central. And um, so it's a lot of, a lot of workshops from with local expertise and also some folks from outside of town. It's March 7th. It's at LA Trade Tech. It's uh, labikesummit.org. And it's a, it's a chance for bicyclists to really come together and uh, learn tools for community organizing and for bicycle solutions. I think a lot of a lot of bicyclists in LA have, haven't ever seen like a bicycle boulevard or even bike lanes hardly at all and stuff. So sort of if we can, I think if we can hear how how folks have come together in other cities and, and been successful, um, that's that's one of the outcomes that we're open for the Bike Summit. It's at labikesummit.org. 
Hey, uh, I just wanted to ask, is there are there any uh, upcoming events that you want to tell us about, maybe in our area or maybe online? Also, I want to hear more about Nautopia, and Larry has a question. Well, other than tonight at Book Soup, I don't have too many things to promote locally. I'm not that aware of what the local calendar is. I know Joe would probably have a long list of events to promote beyond that. Um, Nautopia I could go on and on about, but maybe we should get Larry's question before, and then I'm happy to come back to that if there's some time to fill. Yeah, hi. Just one question. I know I do a lot of rides with the Midnight Riders, and um, a lot of it, especially when you look at their website, is uh, having to do everything correct legally, and which I think Critical Mass does. Um, and I was just wondering, they are, um, the Midnight Riders are pro-police. The police come along many a time and ride alongside, and uh, they actually do some roadblocks for us through red lights when they feel that some of the riders that are straggling who don't know the rules, are breaking the rules, and they, they, they kind of give in to us and they let us have our way most of the time. And uh, I noticed the critical mass has an opinion differently than the Midnight Riders. I just wonder if you want to talk to that issue about the police. Before I hand this over, I'm going to interject here just real quick, Larry, because I know that especially in the beginning, it wasn't always like that. We, we got uh, on rides that were not related to Midnight Riders. We were stopped in... Uh, in, and uh, detained in different cities and asked who the leader of Midnight Riders was. So very, uh, like, it, Midnight Riders has gotten to a point where they, they've made a, a friendship with the police. But uh, also, real quick here, I do want to kill radio's phone number here, 213-252-0998. It's Saturday. Uh, if you're listening, please give a call if you have anything that you'd like to add. But I'm back to you here, Larry. I'm a member of the BAC, the 4th District, and um, I'm the, the... You tell them, go. It's the Los Angeles Bicycle Advisory Committee for the yeah. city of LA. For the city of Los Angeles. And we have a good relationship with the police, and um, the police are helping now. And I'm new to the board, and I'm new to these mass rides. I come from a racing kind of past, and I'm really enjoying myself. I, I've never had more fun in my life. I don't have to be the guy in front anymore. It's, you know how much fun it is. You do it all the time. Um, and I just want uh, you talk on the issue of the fact that uh, the police now have seemed, especially in Los Angeles, have seemed to come awake and uh, seem to understand the uh, critical mass of Midnight Riders. And I was wondering if that kind of wave is passing through the United States, through the world, or is it still a big problem? I think it ebbs and flows in various places depending on their sense of feeling they need more control or feeling threatened by things going on outside of their control. So, um, you know, there's individual police who are starting to understand it. I think the real test is not so much their treatment towards critical mass or midnight riders. It's their treatment towards car bike accidents. Because if you go to a car bike accident scene, if you come up upon one or you were a witness to it and you happen to be sitting on a bicycle, most cops will not take your statement. They will treat you as though you're irrelevant to the story because you're biased, because you're on a bike. All the motorists around are invited to make a statement. All the pedestrians are invited to make a statement. But if you're on a bike, you're systematically disqualified from making a statement. This is the case in San Francisco even to this day, even though there have been memos from the chief of police to the rank and file police saying that is not acceptable. You must take statements from everybody at the scene of an accident and on it goes. But there's an incredible prejudice against bicyclists by police officers on the rank and file level across the board in the Bay Area. And if you go out in, on a bicycle and you get into an accident, 
they think it's your fault always. It's always the motorist who was like victimized by the fact that you got in front of them or did something wrong that caused them to have an accident with you, but it's your fault. And especially if you don't wear a helmet, which I don't, and I don't wear a helmet primarily, well, there's a lot of reasons. I've just been a bicyclist for so long. I'm, I'm a reckless rider, literally, in both senses of the word. I've never had a wreck, and I'm totally reckless. And it's fine. As long as you're paying attention to your own safety, that's the rule for bicyclists is your safety is your responsibility because it's for sure nobody's paying attention to it out there. And uh, the problem is that amongst the bicycling culture, there's a tendency even to blame bicyclists who get into accidents if they don't happen to have this consumer device on their head, as though that the presence or absence of that is the qualification of whether or not you're justified in claiming the engineering of the road is screwed up and you've been hit by somebody you know, incorrectly or however that works out. So I'm actually against a, a politics that we've tended to impose on ourselves that says it's your personal responsibility to buy a product to solve a completely screwed up engineered uh, traffic system out in the society. Instead of saying, no, we need to completely change how roads are designed and how we get to use them as bicyclists. And the cops in general are enforcers of that other mentality. Now, I'm really glad to hear that you're finding a positive relationship with them with these rides. That's great. We don't really have that going on in San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco, we've managed to keep them at bay. They're no longer attacking us. They don't really pick a fight with us, uh, but they don't like us, and we don't much like them. And the real reason is because in everyday practice, when you need help as a, as a regular human being in a society, you think the police are there to help everybody sort of equal, even-handedly. If you're on a bicycle, you're not going to get any help. They're actually going to do the opposite of what you need because you're on a bicycle. So it's crazy. Hi, this is Stephen. This is so interesting, and I find that there's issues that go way beyond bikes that we're touching on. But I'm very interested in the intersection of class and the whole thing because I sort of think that um, what seeks to explain some of the conflict between police and and those who they have to, for pay, try to give some semblance of control over is 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 class, and I think that's coded, and I think that. Midnight Riders is a slightly different animal than Critical Mass in that it comes out of messenger culture, whereas Critical Mass probably has is built up has as some of its riders those people who frankly build their identity around you know f the police or I am I mean that adolescent thing you're talking about when you reference the BMW incident, and that's that go that's beyond language you can feel that I mean and so the other thing is I mean we all have good friends or cops probably or we grew up with some, with some cops or it's not I don't think it's an us or them thing and I think probably because of the stage of development critical mass is in and who, and who's, who makes it up that ha- that seeks to explain to some degree why the, the um, relationship is different I don't know uh, but I, I kind of wish we wouldn't always think of it's us and them I mean there are bicycle police let's have them on our team you know I mean I could go on and on and I, I hope to tonight at Book Soup but anyway it's just, it's just the scratching of the surface of the intersection of class and things. So anyway, Jim. The, the same way that, Stephen, you bring up a good point, the same way that we talk about the the kind of rogue agents of uh, critical mass, you you have that that as well in police. You have that pretty much in every single section of segment of society. So no matter, no matter what we do, we're never – I don't think anybody's ever going to have – society fully on their side so as as bicyclists we are definitely in a minority and there is something to be said about the feeling of solidarity that we enjoy being in a minority uh i'm wondering what you think you you talk about in autopia whether or not it would be as appealing to ride as 
in a utopian society where bicyclists are are fully recognized as uh, legal members of of the roadways, do you think that do you think that we would lose some of the some of the appeal that we are enjoying right now? That's a great question. I remember we did a questionnaire in 1996 in San Francisco for critical mass riders. We put it out on paper, and we also put it out electronically, and we got about an equal number of responses both ways. And I just remember this one guy's really eloquent response. He says, you know what? This is the golden age of bicycling because when we win, it's going to get to be awful because we're going to have to follow all the rules. And so I thought that was really amusing. I mean, he went on at some more length than that, but that was the gist of what he had to say. Um, I don't know how many people here have ever been to Copenhagen. I have several times. My mom happens to be from that city. And it had a big influence on my sense of what was possible. And I, you know, in the city of Copenhagen in the mid '60s, was a regular European city with, you know, not terribly wealthy at that point. And uh, they, everybody was basically moving towards cars, and they had buses and trains as well, pretty good ones, but nothing like uh, what it is today. And they did not have this grid that they have today of all these amazing side paths on every single street. So in Copenhagen, you have a sidewalk, then a curb, then a side path, then a curb, then park cars, then traffic, and then, of course, tramways and whatnot in the middle of the street. And one-third of all trips, whether you're 8 or 85 in Copenhagen, in the harshest winter and the hottest summers, are happening on bicycles because the facilities are there. You build them, and they will come. So I think as we move forward on this, this culture that's demanding a reorganization of urban space to suit a different kind of convivial human life, uh, we'll win. We're going to win that that battle because it just makes sense for co- all kinds of reasons, from global warming to uh, you know pollution to uh, the breakdown of human spirit and the need for community. So uh, that's inevitable that that's going to happen as long as we hang in there. But on the other side of it is this problem about you know where the bike lane structure is going to lead to a different kind of behavior for bicyclists. They're going to have to get used to that. And we're already having this problem in San Francisco where on certain parts of the mission we're so crowded with bikes now. And I go whizzing through those four-way stops just routinely like at full speed. And guess what? Somebody else is doing the same thing going the other direction in that intersection. And I've had about ten really seriously near misses in the last two year, about two months. So there's a there's a densification going on because so many more people are cycling that it really does require us to start thinking about traffic rules as bicyclists and yeah the freedom to just fly is kind of diminishing as a result. We we actually have someone on the phone here. Is this uh is this a related question here? Uh, it, well, and sorry, something, about something for question for Chris. Chris, would you like to sure. take a phone question here? Hello, hello. Are you there? No, they're gone. Nobody's on the phone. Uh, we may have uh, we may have actually missed our caller here. Let's let's see. Nick's gonna Nick's gonna do a recap on the on the question that we got. Here. Uh, yeah, that was uh, Hassan, uh, also a member of the, of our collective here, uh, who wanted to know um, if you don't wear a helmet and you get in an accident because he said it sounded like you don't like helmets. Um, then don't doesn't society have to pay for? Oh, here is Hassan. Hello. Hi. Hey, I'm calling into your show. Yeah, this is Chris. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Do you want me to talk to you about yeah, them first? No, go ahead and ask him. What's your name? My name's Matt. And where are you calling from? Woodland Hill. Okay, great. Go ahead. Um, it's live. What I was live wondering. Pardon me. You're live on the radio. Let me turn down this. Let me turn it down. <laughs> What I was wondering is, uh, has anyone been to the Burning Man Festival and uh, witnessed 
their version of the critical mass, which is called critical boobs, uh, which basically consists of about 6,000 women bicycles. I think it's critical doing, tits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize what, what kind of language we can use on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, I guess boobs wouldn't be any better than tits. But, oh, yeah. Um, so that was one question. And also my other question is, uh, there's a certain amount of romanticism attached with being a rebel, and if you're really successful as a rebel, you become the establishment. So what kind of long-range thing, once everybody is on bicycles, don't the rebellious people simply become the establishment at that point? Yeah, and then the rebels become motorists. <laughs> I suppose. So, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering what percentage of being involved in this kind of rebellious activity or, uh, you know, that draws notoriety to you and uh, draws attention to your cause, once it becomes really successful, <clears throat> wouldn't that just be the norm? I and hope so. It, I mean, that's certainly my, my, my fondest fantasy is that the kinds of behaviors that we're engaged in would become the norm. Right. And life would become much better than it is. Like that's what I think underlies a lot of these impulses for me. I don't know if it's true for every bicyclist. I don't feel like being a rebel for its own sake. I care less. But I, right. I live in a society that's based, frankly, stupid. It's really badly organized. I didn't have anything to do with it. Nobody asked me if we should have a society based on freeways and private cars and pollution. Right. And oil <laughs> but don't you think if you look back um, when uh, when cars did come into existence? The whole concept was, hey, this is going to make things so much better. Oh, we're yeah, all going to be better off. Yeah, yeah. Um, no and uh, you know, we're not going to have to, you know, walk five, you know, five hours into town or ride our horse across the, the state to, in order to take our wares to the market. Uh, so, you know, it's strange how if you keep backing up, it's always been, hey, you know, this is going to cure this problem. This is going to cure this problem, but. Uh, what kind of foresight to, like you guys have already talked about, it's already sort of working too well in some places where now we're just simply clogged with bicycles. Well, I'm going to back up on that because I think that's a good point to bring up. It's always interesting to try to anticipate the future of what you're demanding and, and, and to flag that for all of us. I'm going to give a little story about San Francisco in the 1890s, 110 years ago. There okay. were mass bike rides of ten, five to 10,000 bicyclists in the streets of San Francisco. This is before the private car existed. And what were they demanding as they were across the United States at that time? Asphalt and good roads. It was the good roads movement. It was led by the League of American Wheelmen. And so the cyclists pretty much got what they asked for, and it didn't quite work out the way they planned. <laughs> and so that's one part of the story. The other part of the story to, to flag there is just that, you know, we want to talk about the bicycle as this great ecological device, and it is certainly more ecological than the car, but it's also itself an industrial device and involves a very high-tech and complicated global market and system of production. And if you go back to his point of origin in those same period, the 1880s and 1890s, when the pneumatic tube, the air-filled pneumatic tube was invented, that set off a frenzy in the, the southern part of the globe, in the Congo and the Amazon, to go out and get the rubber that the right. northern bicyclists were in hot demand for. And those conditions of production for the people that lived in those parts of the world were unbelievably barbaric. They were put to, through um, just pure slavery for the most part. And that was because of the demand of bicyclists for, for air-filled tubes. So we have to look at the larger context, not just of, of what we inadvertently get when we argue for new changes, but also the kinds of contexts in which we produce the world that we're in already. So I think your point's well taken, frankly, and I'm glad you brought it up. 
I would hope that we could start thinking more comprehensively and more systemically about the cycles of our lives, all the ways we interact with the ecology of the planet, and all the ways we interact with each other as human beings and the other parts of nature that are equally valid to consider as we live together on the planet uh, and go forward. And it's right. not, not easy to do, but I, I would argue that we're a lot, doing a lot better at it today, at least in these kind of conversations that we're having. Not, sure. Not so much at the level of actually physical changes in, the, in our lives yet, but it's coming. And I feel like these conversations are leading to a certain kind of momentum that will make a much more coherent alteration of the physical landscapes we live in as time goes on. I hope so, but I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's an important point. Thanks. Carry on. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. Chris, I'm, I'm interested in, um, so we, we've had an explosion of, of fantastic bike culture in L.A. with, with, uh, Midnight Riders and Wolfpack Hustle and Crank Mob. We're getting these big rides with 600, 1,000, 1,500 people. Um, what uh, I, I'm one of the things I'm excited about is to try to like how how do we take those folks who are excited to ride, who feel this liberation and joy on the rides, and how do we how do we do what I think would be taking that the next step is to uh, generate pressure for changing our city or whatever. How do we how do we capitalize on that energy? How do we take those riders into bike activists or or what what do we do with though that that mass of excitement that we have what's your advice well i think you have to question whether that uh excitement is is definable in the way that you're defining it like it may not be even relevant for what you're interested in as a political agenda so that's a question for you is to find out if that's true and i think that might be more of a, uh, making inquiries rather than than sort of organizing in the more traditional sense of like sign all these writers up to our agenda because obviously they're interested in this because we're also saying we're into it but actually a lot of these people are out there because it's a social experience because they live in a society where human interaction has been reduced to transactions every moment we're all reduced to pieces of property for sale and that's it and there's nothing else to do but then suddenly you can go out on a bike ride with 1500 people and have this awesome experience that nobody's regulating it it's absolutely an open space you can be who you want to be in it you interact with people you've never met before so there's this craving for community and social interaction and public space that I think is a more powerful force for the embrace of the bicycle and these collective bicycle rides than the idea of bicycling and bicyclist rights, which for most people is kind of like, yeah, okay, sure, go, go and do that too. So I think you have to be a little bit cautious about seeing this uh, in an instrumental fashion, and I think that's been one of the successes of critical mass is that it's, a, it's an anti-instrumental event. It's not trying to do anything. It's only existing for itself, for the possibilities that are embodied within the moment that you live and recreate every time you show up for it. And it, you never can say that it's about something else. There's no demands being made. There's no goal. And people always ask me, oh, have you achieved anything with critical mass? Yes, I've had about 142 lovely rides. Thank you very much. And I've met thousands of great people. And I've been able to have these kind of conversations in cities across the planet because people are really – motivated and excited about something that shifted in their life when they experienced and they had his taste. And I think from a political organizing point of view, it's really important to keep your kind of uh, vision broader and not narrow it down to the sort of the instrumentalized, let's make bike lanes or let's have this improvement. Let's get bike racks. Let's have showers. I mean, all those things are great. And having a comprehensive agenda that you introduce people to in those rides, fine, good idea, you know, affect their imaginations in that direction. But to assume that they're readily organizable into a particular political agenda, I think, is to miss the miss the, the larger experience that's going on. 
guess what I was going to say is kind of just basically going to echo that. I think that like in any for anything you want to do in life, there's going to be a, a spectrum of people and different of different kinds. And there's the impulse. There's two impulses. There's the inspire impulse or the require impulse. I look, I look at it like let's get these people to sign these pro these petitions. Let's, there are going to be those people who they do that. But there's going to be those people who uh, do everything else along the continuum. But I think if you can keep the inspire as the broader part of it, you're going to keep all those people active. And so anyway, anyway, I don't know if that adds much value, but that's what I hear as you're, what you're saying. Anyway, back to you, Jim. Or let's see, uh, Elisa's got a question. Uh, this is Elisa. Um, so I feel like, <laughs> uh, like I'm sort of one of those that just came on. I was just a cyclist that would ride to get from point A to point B purely. I didn't, I like riding, but it was really just a form of transportation for me. Like I'm not, and I'm not, I don't know that much about bikes. I just know that I like to get from point A to point B on them because I can split lanes and run reds and, you know, get where I need to be as fast as possible. Yeah. So then a bike ride came along when I was down and out <laughs> And it was actually, I mean, like, I think I might have cried because it was just like the red blinking lights in front of me, the white blinking lights behind me. Like, it was definitely, and it was a critical mass in um, February last year. So this is my year um, of getting involved in this whole thing. And it was totally just a ride, and that's all it was. And I wasn't being, there was no political, like, I was not going to get into it for any sort of, like, fight. I was just there definitely socially. Um... And it was amazing. But I also think that it's just, it'll be with experience that if you care, it'll sort of come into you. Like, it'll get, you'll get involved. Like, I was arrested um, for corking on critical mass uh, at the end of May last year. And I had a megaphone. And I was entertaining a guy in a Volvo. Like, I just wish he would have been my witness to be like, no, it was fine. I wanted her to be in front of me. It was funny. You know, he was laughing because I was saying, look at all the hot babes on bikes. It's a good Friday night. Like, you know, just trying to entertain him. And it was amazing. And then the cop comes up from behind me. I literally am in handcuffs and searched and everything. They go through everything of mine, which they find that I have a camera, a pack of gum, and and my megaphone, like, <laughs> and an ID. <laughs> um and so it was, it's, so little things like that. And I got ticketed and I, when I went to go fight it, they, he had never turned it in. He had never turned the, I still have it. And then the lady t says, you need to call once a month to make sure that, cause he has up to a year to turn it in. And I'm like, I haven't called once. Cause that's a joke. Cause that's not like, um, it's just not right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So little things like that. It's just like the progression will happen if you are, if you care. Like, I think that that's really my, like, outlook on how you can get people involved on a political scale kind of thing. I think that's kind of, Stephen again here, I think that's what I'm kind of saying is that um, if, if you keep the momentum going out of the pure joy of it, because there's all different kind of people out there, there'll be those people who want to create the subcommittee and get the petitions and all that, and let them do that. Our job is to do it for the fun of it. And if it's a good idea on its own merits and on its own in inherent joy, it's going to carry the day eventually. That's my thought. And I just want to augment that to say that uh, it's, it's partly to just for the fun of it, but I think we can also find that saying just for the fun of it sounds a little bit trivial. And, and it's not trivial. It's actually a big vision 
of the potential joy and pleasure in life that gets lost in the conversation over and over again. So I think that our job and the ones who are out riding for this broader convivial experience and vision is to be able to be better at articulating what that means, which is that we want a life that's radically better than this one. This is a pale shadow of how good life could be, and let's get on with it. Um, I'm going to hand this over to Larry. Yeah, Joe just left, but he wanted me to ask a question. Uh, can you uh, explain corking and uh, exactly what it's done for? In critical mass, when you have a large number of bicyclists rolling down the street, you come across an intersection and you enter it on a green light, hopefully, or if it's not a lighted intersection, you just head into it when it's clear. And then the bikes proceed. And there's motorized traffic coming along the side that wants to cut across. And they're waiting for their green light. And they get a green light, but there's a crowd of bikes in the intersection. And the two or three people that get in front of each lane of traffic or even sometimes just one person with a bicycle turned sideways across the horizontally across the front of the car are the corks. It's like corking the intersection. And that way, they're there to make sure the motorist doesn't think they can just inch into the crowd of bikes. That's really the point of it. And then they're there also, hopefully, to have a decent experience of interacting with them if they can, like waving. We used to make signs. It was actually very effective to be corks with these signs. On one side, it would say, thanks for waiting. And you'd hold that up, and it would show them that you thought about them. You knew you'd be in this moment, and you you considered their situation a little bit. And then when they start honking and somebody, like, four cars back is leaning on them, then you flip the sign over and says, honk if you love bicycles. Yeah. And so then everybody starts laughing. And then it's actually it just creates this kind of nice experience. So there's ways of doing it. However, if you have those signs and the cops are tending to put you in handcuffs for doing that, the sign's not going to help you. Then they'll say, oh, yeah, you were totally planning to come out here and block traffic. Therefore, you're a criminal, which is absurd. But, you know, we're actually the, the essentially safety monitors. But they don't treat you that way. They treat you as though you're doing something criminal when you're doing that because there are ideas about traffic. Now, you, you actually – you've brought up some incredible points today. Uh, Copenhagen the, is a model that actually Cycle.org is, is basing their whole teaching system off of. But one of the things that I do want to bring up here uh, is the idea of computer separation. You've been at, you've been at critical mass through the boom of the, of the computer, of email, of uh, its rise, basically. And computer, you talk a lot about social interaction and i feel like do you feel like this is more necessary today than ever because of the separation that we have and is made possible by the internet by by sitting at home listening to your to your computer uh, that's a really great question. Thank you for that one. I actually think that the problem of our atomization, our separation from each other, is reduced by market life, that it turns us all into individual monads that go around buying and selling things, including our own time. The rise of the technological mediation of the computer is really of two qualities. One hand, yeah, it's sort of this dark experience of being constantly totally isolated in this world where you're clicking, 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 looking for something that's going to fulfill you and never finding it. And then the other side of it is this incredible opportunity to connect with people who are in sharing a certain affinity with you, who do have things that you can exchange with them around philosophical arguments, photographs of interesting events, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, I mean, I kind of feel like I experience both of those all the time. 
And having a possibility of going out and having face-to-face experiences in the street on a bicycle is a way of short-circuiting not so much that level of alienation, but the, the alienation of living in a society based on the spectacle, this, the, this representation of the world that comes across all media channels all the time that says, this is the best of all possible worlds. America's number one. We're the greatest. This is the best culture that's ever existed on the planet. And everything's great. And if you don't have a great life, something's wrong with you individually. You're not buying the right products. Get out here and buy this one so you'll feel a lot better. And on and on that goes. And if you're in a car, mostly that's what you're hearing. But if you're on a bike, you're not hearing that at all. You're actually going out and smelling things and talking to people and hearing what's going on and finding out directly from each other what's really happening in your lives and ascertaining that and verifying it and having a feedback loop that's completely different than receiving this edited package from some corporate uh, editor out there who's decided to package a certain vision of the world that has nothing to do with what most of us are living. So I love the bicycle for as an anti-spectacular device in that regard. The computer has actually been pretty handy. I mean, the Internet has been pretty handy for facilitating the expansion of critical mass across the planet. When we started in 92, the web didn't really exist. By 93, it was coming online. By 94, I had a flyer I wrote called uh, Bicycling Over the Rainbow, Redesigning Cities and Beyond, which I typeset in an old typesetting machine with no memory, and it just was a physical object, and we handed it out at critical mass. And about three months later, I got an email from somebody, and I wasn't getting that many emails yet at that point. And they were like, yeah, I just read your flyers here in French in, in Geneva on this website. And I was like, what? And then I got it. It's like right at that moment I realized, oh, my goodness, something really different is happening here. And by then, suddenly there was critical mass rise appearing in many parts of the world, and the news was traveling really fast. And we made a little how-to-do critical mass booklet that we'd sent out physically to places like Poznan, Poland, and New York, and London. And that had helped. But now with the Internet and having all those things online, it just goes super fast, and anybody can get it and go really quickly with it. So there's something really important about being able to disseminate things like that and to find your your affinities online so quickly and so easily but it's also a, a, a reinforcement of our isolation as you pointed out and having the the physical experience in the streets to to correspond to that to be a piece of that when I mean, you put them together that's triply powerful or goes on to a whole new dimension now you're in San Francisco and San Francisco sort of has a bit of a green belt around it. So you you basically have a 7 by 7 mile city that that uh you can explore. Do you think that that has anything to do with the popularity of of biking? Do you think that that's something that more more cities could learn from the just condensing creating a a smaller space? A lot of bicyclists that I've met in critical mass over the years have gone uh, gone on to go to school in urban planning and design and transportation planning and landscape management and all these kind of issues. And a lot of them are really motivated about this uh, sort of new urbanism of densifying cities. And, and they see that that phenomenon in San Francisco as a, you know, part of this f- effort to create, you know, to stop sprawl, to stop suburbanization and all that kind of stuff. And so I think the city has been good for that. Of course, many people that I visit across the planet, when I tell them I'm from San Francisco and I ride a bike, they're like, how do you do it? Oh, those hills. How is it possible? And, of course, you've got your fair share of hills here in L.A. too. It's really, as we know, it's not that big of a deal. You, like, get put it in a lower gear and go over the hill. Big, big deals. Just do it. But, uh, you know, the other way you do it is you follow the water. So if you just stick to the actual landscape you're in and you learn about it, you can always find your way around most hills and just stick to the low points and the and the, the edges of the slopes going down to the creeks because they're always underneath the, the asphalt. If you hunt for them in a bicycle, you can figure that out really easily because when you're going downhill, you're headed to the water. And when you're going uphill, you're headed away from the water. So you start thinking about the city in a different way that you, you get that regular regular experience. The 7x7 seven seven thing in San Francisco is not uh, particularly relevant to the why people bicycle there because most of the bicycling is happening in the certain part of the eastern side of the city. 
And if you get to the west side of the city, it feels like old San Francisco where the streets are full of cars or, or you know, there's not much space for cycling. There aren't that many cycles on the road. And so there's kind of split culture in the city as well. And then you get outside of San Francisco altogether and, and you really get to normal California, normal American life where everybody's living in a car and suburbia and air conditioning spot to air conditioning spot where they're going to shop and then go home and sit in front of TV and be air conditioned some more. And uh, San Francisco is luckily a good antidote to that. Could, could you maybe uh, explain the wiggle? Yeah, the wiggle goes with what I was just talking about. It's the, the path from the Mission District to the Haight, which, or if you're going from the uh, sort of south, uh, eastern side of the city that's sort of low, closer to sea level, and you need to get up into where the Golden Gate Park starts and the panhandle goes, there's a wiggle that we take. It's called the wiggle. It's just basically zigzagging through this little part of the lower Haight, and it's actually following the, the bed of an old creek that goes right through that area. And it was a valley called San Susi once, once upon a time, and there was actually a Frederick Law Olmsted plan to build a big park in that area that never got implemented in the 1870s. So there's a great deal of geographic geographic history, which I could bore you guys to death with, but I won't. <laughs> but basically, it's an old creek bed. Well, once again, I just want to remind everybody, we're listening to uh, Kill Radio or KPFK.org. I'm sitting here with Chris Carlson. Thing. 